Thank you for joining us today. You are moments away from a sermon presented by Thompson Presbyterian Church in Thompson, Georgia. We are an associate Reformed Presbyterian Church that seeks to glorify God, grow in Christ, and go in His Spirit. You can hear this sermon and many others this time every Sunday right here on WTHO 101.7 FM. You can also listen to sermons on our website, thompsonpresbyterian.org. We will begin service at 11 a.m. in our multi-purpose building on our campus. Please come and join us and worship God with us in spirit and in truth at 11 a.m. If you are unable to attend or not yet comfortable in joining us, please feel free to watch the service live on our Thompson Presbyterian Church YouTube channel every Sunday at 11 a.m. I thank you for being with us today. Now let us turn our attention to the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by looking at his holy scripture. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Well, thank you, Jim, for that kind introduction. It's good to be with you all this morning. I was here about a year and a half ago, I guess it was, for a Presbyterian meeting and enjoyed the warm hospitality of your congregation then, and I've enjoyed it this morning as well. Good to, see, to be with the saints and to see some old friends as well. Um, I was on the phone this week with Hank, and he was just expressing to me how deeply grateful he and Linda and their family are for the love and support and provision that you all have shown them uh, through their season of sickness. He was just deeply moved by it and um, wanted me to be sure to convey that. And I was pleased to, because it, it means a great deal to a pastor to know that the congregation uh, loves and values them and, and looks out for their family, especially in their time of need. So I just want to uh, commend that encouragement to you, uh, Thompson ARP Church, and um, it was very evident his gratitude and passion uh, for you, his flock. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer together, and I, I do this um, with, with this in mind. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, me, I would not say that prayer is something that comes naturally to me. Um, especially in times like these. The title of this sermon is How to Pray in Times Like These. Um, in times like these, with a pandemic, with civil unrest, with a lot of cultural uh, concern and confusion, and add to that an election season on top, uh, questions about whether school will be resuming in the fall and what that means for everyone's work and life and uh, ability to support their families, and add to that whatever personal troubles we always find ourselves in, personal, familial, uh, work-wise, these are indeed difficult times. And what I find quite natural in any time, but especially in times like these, is uh, anxiety. And all of the things you say inside of your head with an anxious mind. What I find natural in times like these is, is fear and thinking how to protect myself from whatever may threaten. What I find natural in times like these is consuming hours and hours of media on the TV or on the computer or through the phone. What I find natural in times like these is talking about times like these over dinner with friends and family where you finish the conversation and you think, I really wish we'd talked about something else for the last three hours. Have you all had that happen in the last few weeks? But how to pray? How to pray in times like these? 
Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he answered with the Lord's Prayer. And it teaches us how to pray in times like these because the Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray in any time. But it's especially helpful to take our time and our hearts to the Lord's Prayer and to say, Jesus, teach us how to pray and even how to pray in times like these. So before I read our, our short passage, let us go to him and ask his help on our hearing of his word this morning. Our gracious Father, we come to you through the name of Jesus Christ, who ever lives to intercede for us, and who with you gives us the great gift to the church and to the people of God in this time, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might have your strength in our lives, that we might be bound to one another in this pilgrimage and not be alone, and that we might cast our eyes upon a very familiar text, one we've probably all heard and read and prayed countless times, and draw forth from it riches old and new for the well-being of our soul, for the well-being of our church, and for the uh, ability to follow your call in our lives where you have us. We pray this with great hope that you will be pleased to give this gift to your children. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus says in Matthew 6, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This morning we'll be looking just at the beginning part of this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and we'll have four points that we'll look at. The first three focus on the nature of the address, that is the position from which we pray, and the fourth and final point we'll look at the first petition, the first thing that we actually do request. It's so important to remember who God is and who we are in relation to him when we pray. And that's how Jesus has us begin when he teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven. Let's look at three things about this. First, let's look at Father. Father. A word that brings to mind our first point, which is security. The security that we have in knowing God as our Father. Now, as I walked in this morning, I saw there was a Sunday school class that was just finishing. You told me you're working through the Psalms and uh, an excellent book on the Psalms. This morning you're looking at Psalm 120. And let me just ask you all this, if you've spent much time in the Psalms, how many of the 150 Psalms begin by addressing God as our Father? Any ideas? Any guesses? I think what I'm seeing on your face is none. Not one of the 150 Psalms that the Old Covenant people were taught to pray to the Lord and the New Covenant people are enjoined to pray as well Begin by addressing God the way Jesus says we should pray. If you read the prayers of Abraham, if you read the prayers of Hannah, all the prayers of David that we have in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible, if you uh, look at the prayers of the prophets, you will never once find an individual member of the Old Covenant community begin a prayer by addressing God as our Father. There are a few places here and there, a couple times in the Psalms, once or twice in Isaiah, where God is spoken of as a, a father to the fatherless, or as the father of, of Abraham, uh, the, our father of our nation, 
What you usually find there are, are expressions of God's fatherhood in terms of being the founder of a nation, the way we speak of founding fathers, or, or the protector, the defender of the weak. But the idea of God as the father who cares for his children and who have all of the privileges and protections and provision and presence that children have from a father, that is something that we don't see in any full way at all in the Old Covenant. Now, could you guess why that might be? Why, why, why might it not be until the New Testament that suddenly this view, the veil is pulled back and we see God as the Father and are taught to call upon Him as our Father? Well, what happens from the Old Testament to the New? The Son comes. The Son has been given. And in the Son, we see not only the person of Jesus Christ, but we see His relationship with the Father. We see the Father revealed in the Son. We've got some little boys here look a lot like their dad. My son looks a lot like me. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see exa exactly what God the Father is like in terms of His character, His disposition, what He loves, what He values, what He esteems, what He despises. All of that is seen perfectly in the Son, but also we see what the Father is like as a Father in the way that He treats His Son that could not be revealed until the Son walked among us and we saw Him. We, see that we saw the Son pray to His Father, depend on the Father, call on the Father, and entrust the Father all the way through His death on the cross and then be honored by the Father in His glorious resurrection and ascension. I say all of this just to hopefully lead you to, to appreciate as you pause the grand privilege that we have as members of the New Covenant to begin a prayer saying, our Father. Abraham would have longed for that. Hannah would have longed for that. David would have written psalms about it. But it's our privilege now that Christ has come. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that they might receive adoption as sons. God has now, and, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Abba being a term of intimacy and reverence. It's what only a child can call their father. What a privilege for us to begin in this sense of security that through Christ, if I trust in Christ, I now am regarded by the God of heaven and earth as his child, and I have the protections and presence of provision of the Father right where I am. So often we go into prayer having forgotten that for many hours or days or weeks, and Jesus wants us to begin by remembering our position and the security we have, Father. Secondly, he says he teaches us to pray, our Father, our Father, and that brings us to our second point, which is solidarity, solidarity. Why would Jesus teach you and me, even when we are alone in our, in our homes or our cars or our prayer closet or walking in some fields, why would he teach us to pray our Father when no one is near? Well, two reasons. One, there's, it's true that you never do come to the Father in prayer alone. We're told twice, three times in the New Testament that Jesus is our great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. What is he doing between his ascension to the throne and his return for which we wait? He's praying for us. He's praying for us. Before you go to, the God, to God to pray, Jesus has been praying for you. After you say amen and go on with what's next, Jesus continues to pray for you. 
And when you are praying, Jesus prays with you. Or rather, we pray with Jesus. He's still in the flesh, in heaven, in the, in the heavenly tabernacle, the nail-scarred hands and feet as our great high priest, with great confidence and joy by the power of his name and the merits of his blood, he's praying for us by name. And so it's right to pray our Father because we join one who's already praying for us. But secondly, we pray our Father because there are no only children in the great family of the Heavenly Father. Calvin, when he's writing about the Lord's Prayer in his Institutes, he has wonderful section titles. You know, if you never read the Institutes, you can still go to heaven. But it would do you good at least to sit down and just read the section titles. He's very thoughtful in each of them. There's so much you could pull out. You could do that just in a couple of hours. They're in bold print. But here he says, Our Father, a form of address that sets us in the midst of the brethren. That is to say, a form of petition that reminds us that when Jesus called me into the family of God, I joined a large family and a growing family that now has gone into nearly every country in the world and is moving toward the time when God's elect shall be called from every tribe and every nation and every tongue on earth. It's a wonderful thing to remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ and how at this time in our life of our culture and our history, how important it is for us to remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who don't look like us and who don't talk like us, near and far away. One of the marks of a Christian, I think, or at least one of the marks of a Christian who's begun even the first steps into Christian maturity is that they, they have this experience, and I, and I hope you've had it too, where you, you find yourself at some point in life, maybe in a work setting, or maybe you traveled, and maybe you were relocated by work somewhere. You found yourself in a, in a foreign culture where people didn't look like you, didn't talk like you, didn't root for your football team. But you met a few Christians. And you had this unique experience of feeling closer to that brother or sister in Christ who was different in you from every other measurable way than you feel with non-Christians who share with you all of those same things. A good friend of mine from my, my previous church up in Greenville and an elder there, seventh generation ARP, Michelin sent him and his wife to, and their two kids to France for two years. And we were talking on the phone once while he was there. He said, Matt, it's just the most amazing thing. He said, um, they don't speak my language. They raise their children differently. They don't root for the Clemson Tigers. They haven't even heard of Clemson University, which makes this crowd happy, I imagine but I feel closer to them than I do to those who have all those things in common with me and don't have Christ. That's what it is to have our Father. And it means that we should always be seeking to be on good terms with and respecting and dignifying and loving the family of God in Christ. I've got three little children, and sometimes when my younger two boys are getting into it, I've only recently started doing this, but they're getting into it, and I'll just stop them, and I'll say, I want you to stop and look at each other and say at the same time, on the count of three, we have the same dad. And they usually can't do that without breaking into a laugh. Sometimes I'll say, we have the same mom. But it's just a recognition of commonality. Why would we treat each other like this when we're, we're from, the, we have the same parents? 
which gives us a unique bond. No one else, there's no other two boys on this earth that are related those, the way those two boys are. And the same is true for believers in Jesus Christ. We all will look like the minority in the new heavens and the new earth. But we'll have that close bond of being glorified in Christ. And we're to be reminded of that every single time that we pray, Our Father. Our primary solidarity is with the body of Christ, whoever it is and wherever they are. Security, solidarity, the third part of our position is strength. We pray, Our Father in heaven. In heaven. I don't know about you, but when I was a boy, when I would pray our Father in heaven or who art in heaven, it always made me think of God as far away. God's way up there, far away. Somehow we're connecting, but he's not near. That's what I would think of when I thought of our Father in heaven. But do you know that the, the main point of this is actually just the opposite? The point is to teach us not that God's far away from here, but that he's near to anywhere. Near to anywhere. Our God is not like the, the idols of the nations in times past and even still in times present. If you've, uh, you've studied the temples or perhaps seen the way local gods are connected with mountains, people believe that the closer they were to that deity's house at the top of that temple or at the top of that summit of that mountain, the nearer they were to God. And the farther they were, the more miles away, the farther they were from that God and from that God's power. In fact, if you were traveling in the ancient days, you'd want to know which is the nearest God. So if I get in trouble, I can call out to that God. Mountain climbers to this day, if you watch, watch any of the documentaries of National Geographic, they oftentimes will be at the, the, the base of Everest, about to go up, and they'll join the local Nepalese there and pray to those local gods. When they go to Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa, they don't pray to the gods of Mount Everest. They pray to the gods of Mount Kilimanjaro. It's this belief that gods have local influence. And Israel in her day before the exile, in the days of Daniel, Many of them had come to believe that their God was a local tribal deity too. Have you ever wondered why Jonah thought he could run from God? Silly Jonah. Don't you know that God is everywhere? No, Jonah didn't. That's precisely why he thought that if he headed farther away from the temple, he could get out of God's signal strength and no longer have this word grasping his heart saying, go to Nineveh and preach repentance to them. Of course, Jonah learned that the God of Israel is not like the gods of the nations. He's the God of heaven and earth, and he's near to you wherever you are, even in the depths of the sea and the belly of a fish. This is a great source of encouragement for us to know that wherever we are, our God is with us, because he is our strength. We are weak, we are feeble, we are frail. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And wherever we are geographically or wherever you are in terms of a situation about to walk into an interview or about to have a sit down with a family member or whatever it is that makes you feel nervous, weak, and vulnerable, our Father in heaven, he is with me here. I love that old hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. As I think about our Father in heaven and what it is to have God for our security and for our solidarity and for our strength, I oftentimes think, when you're watching the news and you feel frightened by what you see because it's what they mostly try to do, it keeps you glued and sells commercials, wouldn't it be something if the news ticker every now and again had this flash across? Leaning, leaning, safe 
and secure from all alarm. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Would that change how you processed what you were seeing? As you remembered, I've got a Father in heaven who is with me, our Father. Well, as you, as you begin to pray the way Jesus teaches you to pray, you just take some time to open your eyes to these things again, to remember, if I, if I trust in Christ, I'm not an orphan, I'm not a slave, I'm a child, and I have the privileges of a son, I have a father. And I'm not alone, I'm part of a global family, and most of my family is in heaven already, from the centuries past, and one day I'll be with them for forever. And... I have strength, not of myself, but it's a gift from God who doesn't have to send it from far away. He's near to me, nearer to me than any other person could be, as near to me as my own heart. What then do we ask? If this is our position, what then is our petition? And this is where we'll finish today with our fourth point, single-mindedness, single-mindedness. Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Three things about this. First, God's name. Many of you probably know this here at Thompson. You love the scriptures and you've probably encountered from time to time that God's name represents his, his reputation. It's his character. It's his fame. It's who he is. He's the God who brought his people out of Egypt. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's the God who brought them back from exile. He's the God that has sustained them through changing empires. He's the God who was revealed in Jesus Christ, whom the world condemned, but God overturned that judgment and raised him and made him the king of kings and the judge of all things. That's our God. And we're praying that his reputation would be hallowed. The word hallowed simply means revered, esteemed, regarded as precious. If you hallow God's name, that means that when God's name is honored, it's your greatest source of joy. And when you see in your own life or the lives of others his name dishonored, it's your greatest source of sadness. We naturally think that way about children and nieces and nephews and grandchildren. When, when their names are honored, it's a source of great joy. When their names are not, it's our source of our greatest sorrow, isn't it? And Jesus is saying we're to revere the reputation of the Lord like that and to seek his honor, to see his name be hallowed. But the third thing, in addition to his reputation and, and revering it, hallowed be thy name is actually not what we oftentimes think it is. It's not a statement of praise. It's not saying we're going to begin by hallowing your name, and after we've praised you, then we'll get to the first request, thy kingdom come. No, no, it's the first petition. It's the first request. It's the train engine request that pulls behind it all the other cars of the different requests in the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's a little more obvious in the original language, and it is, this is what it would read like, hallowed be thy name, Come thy kingdom, be done thy will. That would be the word order. So you might see that a little more obviously. But Jesus is teaching his people, when you remember who you are and you remember who God is, your first request, the first thing you're going to ask God to do is to bring glory to his name. Psalm 115, some of you all know that well. They make, this, they make this their prayer. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way. He prayed himself this way at that critical moment in John 12 where he's now turning toward Jerusalem, toward the upper room, toward his crucifixion. And he says this to the Lord in John 12 in verses 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is the chief desire of the heart that has seen who God is and how great is God's love for his children. That whatever would happen in life and whatever would happen in my life, it would lead to the lifting up of the name of God, for that would be my greatest joy. That's the ultimate reason for everything else we pray for. We're going to pray that his kingdom comes because that's the means that he has ordained for his name to be hallowed. We're going to pray that his will be done because it's through the obedience of his people that his name is hallowed. We're going to pray for daily bread and all of our physical needs because that's how he's going to sustain us, to bring glory to his name. We're going to pray for the forgiveness of sins because that's how a God of grace is hallowed. We're going to pray that he'll protect us from temptations and from evil because as God does that, he hallows his name. He answers the first prayer. All of these other petitions are like train cars behind the engine, which is God bringing glory to his name. My wife and I have enjoyed the the last few weeks. We're kind of behind a a few weeks. But have any of you all watched the big documentary that came out about Michael Jordan back in April? It's it's a 10-part documentary called The Last Dance, and it's It's about his whole career, really, but it focuses on the last year when the team won their last of six championships. And as you watch it, it's neat watching it with my wife. She had never realized how good Michael Jordan was. So that's been a discovery for her, watching a lot of the plays. But you get a lot into the psychology of Michael Jordan. What you realize, what sets him and every other kind of champion in sports apart from the rest, is that Michael Jordan was single-minded. He was not like so many other players trying to negotiate between winning and getting as many points and shots as I want, between winning and having as much free time as I want, between winning and pursuing all these other hobbies that will, that will uh, increase my profile and earn more money. His teammates were in various ways doing that. That can be fine. Family priorities, other things like that. But Jordan had one single-minded focus, winning. When the coach has said, we need you to shoot less and score less to win more, all right, I'm going to shoot less and score less. When he felt like he needed to get sideways with another teammate and really challenge him, potentially break the relationship, he did it because he wanted to win. He was absolutely single-minded with one goal in life, winning. And Christians, we have a different goal, but we're we're supposed to be single-minded like that too. Single-mindedly focused on the glory of our great Father, whatever it takes. Paul says in Romans 14, 7 and 8, says, if we live... We live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. You know what comes when you're able to see things that way? Peace. Peace and contentment. It's that wonderful ability to use that word, whatever comes to pass. Lord, with this illness, Lord, with this work situation, Lord, with this strife with a family member, Lord, with this concern about my city or my church or whatever it may be, Lord, with our country, whatever comes to pass, 
if you will use it to bring glory to your name, it will be worth it. And so I pray for that as I also pray for all of these other things. Peace comes with that. Contentment, sturdiness comes from that. From that kind of single-mindedness. And God wants that for his children. He wants that for you. To have that single-minded focus as we pray, first of all, as a thing right in front of us, that he will hallow his name. Very often what we find in life is that different seasons of lives of our lives, different things try to wedge themselves between us and having God right before us. The psalmist in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord, says, says, I've set the Lord before me. He is at my right hand, therefore I shall not be shaken. It's this image of there's a lot of things set before me. Things I'm called to do of great importance, but the things set right before me, the thing through which I see everything else, the thing that receives my first and deepest affections, the thing set right before me is the Lord. That's the mindset of someone who's seeking to bring glory to God. But so often something wedges itself in between. A concern and anxiety of fear for something in our lives, for our own name, for the name of someone we love, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden we find that we become fixated on it. And everything that we think about and everything that we pray about kind of really begins, if we're honest, with our concern for this thing that has now wedged itself between us and the Lord. And what you, if you're there today, and I know exactly what it feels like, one of the marks of it is you don't have peace. You don't have contentment. And you find yourself trying to force something to happen. And you're asking for the Lord to give you wisdom, and you're asking for him to give you a breakthrough, and it just seems like he's not, and you wonder what's going on. I think Jesus tells us what's going on. Very often, God is waiting until we get our priorities straight. He's waiting until we get to the point where we set the Lord before us, not our right hand again. We're our first in the train car pulling, the train engine pulling all of our other petitions is this one petition, Father, you are so good and you are so great and you are so worthy of all of our honor and glory that my first request in this situation that I'm facing is that whatever comes to pass with it, I and eventually the whole world at the day of Christ's return, would see how you used it to bring glory and honor to your name. That would bring me joy. And it's amazing how so often I've experienced this and seen this, God makes us wait until we get to that point of setting him before us, that he then gives the wisdom that we needed, the insight we've been praying for, the breakthrough, the help, the, the provision seemingly out of left field, because this is the most important thing the hallowing of his eternal name in our short lives. Well, this is what Jesus would have us learn to see when we pray. To remember our security, we have a father. To remember our solidarity with the body of Christ in our city and in the world. To remember our strength. He's with us. He's near. You can't run from him. And to regain a sense of single-mindedness, the point of our whole lives, and the point of everything we're else going to ask for, asking that God, just as Jesus asked before he goes to the cross, Father, glorify your name. And that we might hear him say, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it.
Jesus teaches us how to pray in times like these. Because in this prayer, he teaches us how to pray in all times. And as we learn how to pray, we learn how to live. And learning how to pray is important because there is no greater determinant of how you will live than how you pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we lift up our hearts to you. You who search the hearts and who knows what things have been set in our lives that are difficult, that are hard, that are concerning. What things in our world, what things facing the broader church, what things facing this church. You know all of them, Lord. Help us to see them as those who see you first. Help us to face them as those who have the great joy and confidence of knowing that we are children of God and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to look to you. And would you take our lives that the world might regard as small, the world might regard as insignificant, but make them to serve the greatest, most majestic purpose ever, the honoring of the reputation of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ah, that would be a magnificent prayer to have answered and a magnificent thing to be able to look back on for all eternity and say, God did that with my life. Bring honor to your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, remain standing to receive this benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you would like to support the ministry of Thompson Presbyterian Church and the spread of God's word, we would ask that you consider two things. First, consider praying with us. Pray that God would use his word to impact the lives of his people and to draw the lost to himself. As he says in Isaiah 55:11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Secondly, we would ask that you consider giving financially. You can support this and other ministries by giving through our website, thompsonpresbyterian.org. Just go to the giving page and follow the instructions. You can also give through the Faith Life app on your smartphones. Simply go download the Faith Life app and sign up. Another way to give is to simply text GIVE and the amount to 706-250-6834. Again, that is 706-250-6834. Lastly, you can simply mail in your check, your support to Thompson Presbyterian Church, P.O. Box 398, Thompson, Georgia, 30824. I would like to invite you to come and join us for worship on Sunday at 11 a.m. We are located at 607 Jackson Street in Thompson, Georgia. Feel free to check out our website at thompsonpresbyterian.org for all ministries and event details. You can also call us at 706-309-0213 or email us at churchoffice at thompsonpresbyterian.org. Thank you for listening today. Now receive God's blessing. And now the Lord who has loved you with an everlasting love, may he support you all your days with the everlasting arms until the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Amen.